When we think of beauty and great works of art, we often think about amazing places of inspiration, like the Grand Canyon, or wonders like the Great Pyramids, or museums like the Louvre. But if we look, can we find beauty anywhere? After the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. At our recent Let the Arts Speak conference here at Upper House, we welcomed artist Joel Sheasley to explore the idea of embracing beauty wherever we are and not forgetting to see it in everyday things and the everyday places that we so often take for granted. Alongside the conference, our producer, Jesse Koopman, got a chance to sit down with Joel for a conversation digging deeper into Joel's approach to and passion for art. Joel Sheasley is a painter and professor emeritus at Wheaton College and has had his landscapes displayed in galleries across the United States. He recently published a collection of his works in book form entitled A Fox River Testimony. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Joel Sheasley and Jesse Koopman. Well, Joel, welcome to Upwards. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, for those of you who weren't able to make the event, uh, Joel is here for a very special event that we we put on regularly at Upper House called Let the Art Speak. Uh, Joel, I'd love to start off with just the question of what what are you doing here at Upper House for Let the Art Speak? What are you going to share with the audience? Well, I'll be sharing some of my thinking and experiences really in the last uh, from the last ten or twelve years when I've been focusing on land and landscape. And the title of our event is The Land, regarding the land and so on. So the uh, viewpoint of a person who tries to visualize and paint it and understand it through art is what I'm going to try to offer and hopefully be able to explain myself a little bit, mm -hmm. but also to try to say something about what I think are some of the complications and issues in dealing with the land and art today. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. So let's start off with just how did you get started in it? What drove you to it? Was it something when you were young? Did it come to you later in life? Uh, how did you get started in passion about the land? Well, you know, that's interesting because I just said work that I've done in the last 10 or 12 years that focuses on the land. But because I in my work did this shift to do that focus. Over the time of doing that, I also am looking back and realizing, well, the land and issues about land and landscape have been in my work a long time. I just always saw the landscape feature of my work as not the primary feature. And uh, it's really been there for a long time. So. I have kind of rediscovered something within myself uh, that I've cared about um, much more deeply than I was even aware of uh, for a great part of my uh, working life. Yeah. Where do you think that started initially? Oh, it started uh, just with 
something that I think uh, haunts certain people. That and it and it probably haunts. I I want to believe it haunts most people, uh, and that is just the uh, pull and fascination with the power of a landscape. Mm. Uh, you know, you think of. I guess the most sort of mundane version would be the scenic overlook that you see the sign along the side of the road. Mm -hmm. Why do you pull off? You pull off to stand there and be kind of amazed, right? Yeah. And, and to be drawn into something bigger than yourself. And so that is probably what it is. It's just a kind of quality, I think, that I hope is in, in most of us. Those signs wouldn't exist if <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly a huge part of my life. I, I love seeing the beauty of nature and being yeah. uh, enraptured by the the majesty that is the nature and the natural world around us that God created for us. Um, and it's 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 truly awe inspiring. Yeah, yeah, it is awe inspiring. So one thing I I like to ask that maybe you have a good answer for or not for artists in particular is what's your favorite. So if we're talking about landscapes in particular, what's your favorite place, whether to experience or to portray? Well, I don't really have a favorite place, but I, I, I think the, my favorite place is, I'd like to think, is the place where I am. Oh, that's an interesting uh, answer. I like that. I don't really have a, a great deal of desire to travel all over the world painting a more beautiful landscape someplace. And when I moved to the Chicago area, which is now more than 40 years ago, I remember that upon arriving there, a friend of mine said, Joel, you've got to understand that Chicago demonstrates the power of abstract finance over geography, meaning mm -hmm. there's nothing to look at here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'd have to say that I rather foolishly allowed that notion uh, to take residence in my mind. And for a good number of years, I paid little attention. The landscape to me around Chicago was basically a kind of a game board, you know, where you're moving up and down different paths. Mm -hmm. But uh, slowly but surely, I began to realize, in part just through thinking about the history of the Chicago landscape, but also the experience of it, even as it is today, uh, that there's a great deal of beauty there and a great deal to be seen. And so mm -hmm. um, I, I am best suited to spend some time in a place for a long time and discover what's beautiful there. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's, I use the word beautiful, beautiful in the sense that it is uniquely that place. What a kind word. <laughs> I like that. Because everything has its charms, I think, if you look deeply enough, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it takes real patience and perseverance to see it. But I think if you, if you pause and wait, you'll find it if you look for it. Right. And there are always intrusions into that beauty that you can elect to make the subject of your work or not. So, I mean, it's, I don't mean to say it's all beautiful. Everything is beautiful. There are lots of things that just aren't so beautiful. <laughs> well, agreed. Could, could you say maybe there's beauty in everything, although not all things are beautiful? Yep. I'll go with that. <laughs> I, I, I like that sentiment. Maybe it's not true, but I, I like yeah. the sentiment. It makes me feel good to think about things that way. Yeah. Um, 
So one question before I get on to uh, some of the landscape work that you've already done that, that I've been looking through this beautiful book that you put out. Uh, uh, well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But okay. I want to ask, so you're talking about the beauty in the Chicago area in terms of landscape. Do you consider cityscapes or architecture or uh, cities to be landscape? Well, yeah, the, uh, the ground, the, the land is running under everything. And so we're just looking at the use that human beings have made of some aspects of the land. And of course, land is always being used by the creatures that are on earth, mm -hmm. whether they're humans or not. So humans use it in their own particular ways. They build cities and architecture, roads, bridges, and all kinds of things. Those things do disrupt the original structure of things, but they are part of what the landscape is. Mm. So, I mean, you know, we talk a lot these days about this new geologic age, the Anthropocene, and the implication that we're in an age in which human beings have influenced and affected everything on Earth. So there is no such thing as a truly wild, um, even the wild areas are protected mm -hmm. by law. <laughs> so they're protected. <laughs> Are they wild if they're protected? It doesn't seem quite <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. What what it defines interference on yeah. that, that yeah. level? That's an yeah. interesting question. Yeah. So I do want to get to your book early on because it's something that I just saw for the first time today. Uh -huh. um, and I am thrilled. So oh, great. Well, it's called uh, Fox River Testimony. Yeah. And it is, I mean, if you're not from Wisconsin or Illinois and you've never been to the Fox River area, it's... It's not what I initially thought. Uh -huh. I, I was thinking of the Fox River up in like northern Wisconsin and, and where we have these valleys and so forth. Right. But this this is a different Fox River. This is a, yes. this is a Fox River that's not much of a river, I understand. Well, it it in its Wisconsin phase, I don't think it's much of a river. It becomes a very beautiful river as it moves down into Illinois and it ultimately joins the Illinois River in Ottawa, Illinois. And as it comes down further and further, uh, it becomes quite gorgeous. There are big sandstone cliffs that follow along it. And uh, in its more northerly areas, there's, it's, it has a, quite an urban section in all of Kane County, for example, in Illinois. There's some significant cities that... Uh, are built right on the Fox, and uh, the city of Aurora, Illinois, hmm. actually is partially built on an island in the <laughs> in the Fox River. So it has its urban stretches, it has its rural, very rural stretches as it goes uh, to its mouth, uh, and then further up north in the Chain of Lakes area, it's kind of a, a thought of as a sort of a boating area because it opens up into all these larger bodies of water. Oh, very interesting. And yeah. So I know you talked about painting where you are or yeah. loving where you are yeah. earlier. So being in the Chicago area, I assume that this is part of just where you are. Yeah. But what inspired you to work specifically on the Fox River? Well, of course, I've known about the river um, the whole time I've been living in the area. But um, I 
got to know uh, someone named uh, Brooke McDonald, who is the director of uh, an organization called the Conservation Foundation. Their work in North um, Eastern Illinois is all about saving land and saving rivers. They do a lot of work to promote conservation and a lot of work to educate people about it. And they also are very actively involved in helping people move their properties into a, a kind of conservation easement. Mm. So um, through my contact with, uh, with them, uh, they, uh, in their concern for the fox, had the thought that why not invite Joel to, you know, join our work and make paintings of the Fox River to help people to realize what a, a great resource and a valuable resource it is. So it was a way of bringing art to the river. They invited me to do this project. We worked for at least three years on it. I, I was covering about a 60-mile stretch of the river and just kind of driving up and down canoeing up and down, wading up and down. I painted sometimes from my canoe, mm. you know, standing out in the water a bit. I've, uh, I've got to ask, how does, <laughs> how does that work? I mean, I, I'm not an avid paddler, but yeah. I've, I've been in plenty of canoes. I can't really picture myself, especially in a moving body of water yeah. like a river, uh, painting uh, yeah. from the water. Well, of course, I would have to tie up, you know, to some kind of a tree snag or something. Uh, to be stationary, but um, I have an easel that I can set up that I raise it only half its normal height, so it sits very squarely in the bottom of my canoe. And the whole time you're kneeling, which can be pretty wicked on the knees, mm. and of course you can't stand up and stand back from your work <laughs> and, and take a look. But uh, it's it was a pretty pretty effective way, you know, to get out beyond the trees and beyond things that might otherwise, you know, come between you and certain views and vistas. So great way to, I, I loved it. It was really a terrific. That sounds unbelievably peaceful and, yeah. and amazing yeah. to me. I, I would have loved to have joined yeah. you to just watch you paint there. <laughs> you could have been my uh, man at the paddle. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved that. Hit me up next time. Okay. <laughs> I'd love to come down and, and join you. That'd be a lot of fun. So, uh, one thing that I always find fascinating is uh, people who are environmental painters that spend time only in the environment. Are you doing it only in the environment, or do you use photographs as well, or do you paint from memory at all? Yeah. Everything I do starts on site. So the typical term you may have heard is plein air painting mm -hmm. or open air painting. So every work I do begins with me there on site trying to, as fast as I can, put together a, a kind of oil sketch that describes the mood, the essence of the composition, the feeling of, that I have of being in that place. Uh, and that is usually about a two and a half to three hour project. During that time, I'll take a lot of pictures of things all around the area um, that I can then use for in, as information mm -hmm. to fill in certain kinds of details and uh, get, you know, um, good ideas about how certain things are structured that sometimes you just don't have time to work out when you're on site. Because in two and a half or three hours, the light changes mm. drastically. 
And especially if you're working early in the morning or early in the or later in the afternoon, which are some of the best times to work, but the the light is most evidently changing during mm -hmm. that time. So you have to really scramble. As an avid photographer, I can empathize okay. greatly. And that's a medium that takes a quarter of a second that's or less right. to shoot right. generally. Right. And I get annoyed by the light shifting. I can't imagine what it's like to try to paint a scene for two to three hours. You're, uh, while the light's you're chasing shifting. after a fugitive the whole time, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love you talking about the inspiration that hits you. Can you tell me a little bit about what that experience feels like? When, when you see the scene that says to you, this needs to get painted, yeah. how do you know? How, do, how, does that, how does the nature speak to you? How do you experience that, that revelation? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know that I can give you a, an, a really sensible answer because everything around one, typically, as we were saying earlier, is beautiful. So it's not like we go out to find something beautiful to paint. It's there. The question is, at what point can you find a sort of, what you might call a sort of chink in the armor of beauty mm -hmm. <laughs> that allows you to enter something that uh, within this sort of gorgeous wall of beauty all around you has a slight opening in it that you think, I think I could work my way in at that point. And so that's what I'm always looking for. And I can't tell you precisely what that is, but it's usually, it's just, a, I don't know how to describe it other than to say it's a kind of opening. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can be standing looking at magnificent beauty and not feel like you can find that opening. <laughs> uh, so you're really out searching for it. And uh, that takes time. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, my favorite way to work is to be able to just, in a sense, scout and make maybe little pencil sketches of things that are possibilities, um, bring those home, see if I can develop them a little bit, and then return a second time to really yeah. begin the oil sketch, you know, on site. So did you keep like a map or a catalog of locations that were possible or that you got inspired by, but couldn't take the time in the moment, or? Well, I um, would, again, this is talking about the best possible scenario. I have a sketchbook full of sketches to refer to, and, you know, I would jot down time of day, place, location, angle that I'm looking, and so on, compass point. Um, that would, that's my favorite way to work, because that gives me the time to really hmm ruminate on things but there are also times when there just isn't going to be another opportunity and of course you know the weather in illinois and here in wisconsin is this is changeable you know so indeed you don't know if you, you can't say well i'll come back tomorrow because tomorrow it could be radically different uh in case you anybody's wondering and is not listening to this as it's being recorded during that time frame it's currently early April, and it's 80-something degrees in Madison today. It is supposed to snow on Sunday Absolutely. in two days. Right, right. So you never know in That's this right. area what you're going to get. That's right. 
Yeah, I think of these people in California, you know, wake up to the same sunshine every day. And I, I don't know how they deal with it. It's so boring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Um, did you paint? I mean, for those of, those of the, our audience who aren't looking through the book as we're talking about this, did you paint multiple seasons or was it all? Oh, I painted every season. So um, the, the only times when, I mean, if it gets impossibly cold, you can't do it. But um, I have actually kind of by mistake, accident, found myself painting it. The, the coldest was five degrees, oh, which goodness. was... I, I didn't realize how cold it was going to be, um, and it was really, you know, tough. But typically, you know, you can definitely do it at 32 degrees, and I've painted a lot at 15 degrees. You're just totally bundled up. Mm -hmm. The thing that you can't deal with is rain, uh, because that wets your canvas and wets your palette, which is sitting flat, so it fills mm -hmm. up, and snow will do the same thing, you know. It, I remember when I first thought, oh, I'm going to go out and paint in the snow, you know. <laughs> I look at my palette and it's just covered with snow, you know, and that's ice crystals in the paint and it ruined everything. Yeah. I suppose you could maybe try to set up a tent in some capacities, but probably not on the river you couldn't. Well, I mean, that's right. And then you've got wind, you know. People say, well, use an umbrella and then you put up an umbrella and the wind takes it away. So um, it's really... Uh, it's a wonderful challenge, mm. and uh, you've got to brace yourself and do the best. You, you know, figure your angles right. <laughs> <laughs> so, t tell our audience a little bit about your medium. Uh, so, it looks like everything was pretty similarly styled in terms of your medium and, yeah. and choices. Yeah. Uh, what was your medium? Obviously, you were it's, painting on canvas. Yeah, painting on canvas, and uh, it's all oil paint with me, um, and. Oil paint is fine in cold weather. It gets stiff, but it doesn't freeze. Uh, and uh, oil paint is just the most flexible and the most forgiving, really, of the painting media that I know anyway. And uh, so I'm kind of committed oil painter. I love it. Mm -hmm. So, Joel, you're, you're here for Let the Art Speak, and you're going to be talking about I understand bewilderment and belonging. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the two concepts I think are very fascinating and also not really cohesive, but yeah. you're, you're sharing them in a, in a message together. Yeah. Tell me about where you see them coming together or how they fit together in your perspective. Yeah. Well, and one of the things I'll do tomorrow is... Um, begin with a slide of a fire tower on a mountain in upstate New York, which is where I grew up, and uh, show some pictures of the view from that fire tower, which was really the first landscape I really remember as a child, sort of feeling that I belonged in. At the same time, looking at that landscape, I always felt bewildered by it in that it was calling with a voice from somewhere else, it seemed to me. It didn't seem that I was really there. And so there's this feeling of longing uh, that often comes over us when we look at a, at a landscape um, and trying to understand what that 
is because it's not, it's almost like homesickness. You know, you feel like you're not really where you want to be, and yet you know that where you are is where you are, is, is, you know. You are where you are, yeah. yeah. Right, right. So uh, I think that that's an important component of um, how we respond to the land. And uh, I think through art, one can develop, you know, that mixture of, you know, at-homeness on the one hand, Mm -hmm. and that feeling that you're you're being called to, to somewhere else. Do you think that relates in part to our, our faith perspective and our, our understanding and relationship to God, how he created us as physical beings here, but with a soul that's designed for a world that's perfect and beautiful, but yet we also exist in a world that's broken and, and hurting? Yeah, it's, it's very complex. And I don't really know how to answer that question with any real precision because i think that um you know this longing that i'm talking about i mean c.s lewis is a big fan of that notion mm-hmm. um and uh a lot of his writing um a lot of his stories bring us you know to that kind of experience of that longing for something in the in in a landscape or something but um exactly what it is, I don't know. I mean, I do think it has to do with the fact that um, human beings and all of creation, and Paul was very much a, a big comp, uh, you know, fan of this idea. Yeah, the, you know, the, because, the Apostle Paul, I assume? Yes, yeah. right. I mean, uh, you, know, his, you know, his statement, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth mm-hmm. right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves also are groaning. So he recognized that it's not just like a human thing. It's that we're all part of this, this longing. And, uh, but it's very hard to put some kind of precise notion on what that is. I, you know, um, I don't, you know, because God you know, reveals himself to us as an unknowable being, mm-hmm. you know? So to, to start talking about how much we know what it really means is to sort of, I think, falsify that very notion that God is unknowable. Okay, I hope I'm not... <laughs> no, you're doing great. This is fantastic. I love it. Uh, I, I think a lot of our listeners actually really, really enjoy digging into the harder questions. One, one thing that is very much about a part of Opera House is practicing the balance of not understanding and seeking yeah and i i love that that's where this conversation is going that we're, we're really talking about the unknowability but embracing the fact that we still seek right that's that's very well said um we are being called to something we know not what but we know is happening mm-hmm. <laughs> i love that so I'm just picturing you on this fire tower. Not, uh, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know what part of, of northern... Uh, it's on the edge of the Catskill Mountains. Gotcha, yeah. So I, the Catskills and Adirondacks have a very, very big place in my heart. Oh, really? Um, yeah, Lake Placid area in particular, oh, Saranac Lakes. Sure. Very, very dear to my heart. I've had some amazing times in nature and adventuring up there. Yeah. 
And uh, I'm just picturing you up, up, up there in the Catskills now <laughs> and lo- overlooking this vista. And, and I'm, I'm feeling that feeling of like wanting to be a part of that, yeah. that beauty and that vision. But also, yeah, that notion of feeling like I want to be a part of it. And I see it as beautiful, but I also know that I'm flawed and, yeah. and broken and damaged. And I want that beauty in my life and I want to encapsulate and, and be that. But I also know that I can only experience it in part. Yeah. And yeah. I can walk amongst it and I can embrace it and be thankful for it, but I can't be it. Yeah. And I think there's a, a for me, when I think about artistic expression, especially a patient artistic expression like, painting i think about it as a way that i see people embracing being that on a level yeah i you remind me of a comment from a student of mine from many many years ago um who in describing her work as a you know she was a graduating senior or something and had to give an account (laughs) And she used the phrase, she said, I like to do nature. <laughs> oh, that's, and, that's great. You know, and I, and I, what she really meant was I like to paint pictures of natural scenes. Mm-hmm. But I find in, this, in the use of the word do, to do nature, uh, kind of parallel to what you're talking about of being, because I think one of the things that, painting allows me is this notion of actually doing it Mm. you know you're really you're there take you take it all into yourself you kind of organize it within your own system within your own mind and body uh then you try to work it out through your hands and uh through the gestures of your brush and sort of choreography of how you trace that out and it gives you an opportunity to well, to use her phrase, to do nature, to do <laughs> the landscape. I love that. So I, I know I inferred about my photography love earlier. And while I, I'll be the first to extol the great artistic merits of photography, there is something that's very, very different about photography than painting yeah. or even drawing. There is, there's a lack of patience and presence and doing, I think, in it. Yeah. It's more of a capture and you get to express yourself and how you're seeing things through how you capture. And you do that in painting, of course, too. But there's, there's this lack of interpretation and there's this lack of expression in, in the process of doing because you're clicking a button. Yeah, well, I really like that you bring up the word capture because I think that um, people often will say to me, you've really captured this. And I, and I want to say, I don't capture anything. I'm pointing toward things, but I'm not capturing anything. Uh, And there is no real capture in painting. It's all, what I would say, pointing and and saying, I think it's over that way. I think it's more like this. I think it's kind of like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's what you're doing with your colors and your brushes and everything that you organize is you're saying, I think it's like this. Mm -hmm. Um, You're not saying, got it. Because you don't get it, mm-hmm. and it never is one thing anyway. Every three minutes, every, every minute, it's something different. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting notion, too, because if, if we are doing art, 
it's not something that we are capturing. It's something that we're expressing, right? Yeah. So like, while we may be pointing at something that we've seen or are seeing, we are revealing it through the lens that through we are seeing with. Yeah. When you think about your lens, when you think about when you're viewing something and you're wanting to portray and share that, what comes to mind for you in terms of your doing of art? What comes to mind for me is work. Interesting. It's, T- tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. What, what does it, that mean? It's hard work. Uh, it's, it's just very hard work of paying as careful attention as you possibly can of trying to uh, be alert to all the possibilities. Uh, it's an intense focus. Um, you know, as earlier, you know, you were saying it sounds so peaceful and so wonderful. And I have to admit, for me, there is always a moment when I think, why on <laughs> earth did I even come out here? Mm-hmm. I'm never going to be able to do what this, what needs to be done. Uh, It's way too much for me. It's too complicated and difficult. And I'm screwing it up with everything that I do here. Um, So that doesn't mean that, I mean, you'll never stop me from working in spite of that. But I I, I do think of it as hard work. That's That's the way it really comes across to me. I mean, I'm always ready to go, but I'm always thinking of you. There's always a point where I think, why did I do I'm, this? I'm never going to look at your work the same way. <laughs> and I, no, I'm going to look at it as work now. Uh, I would never have interpreted it that way because it looks like it's, when I, when I look at your paintings, especially even just like the cover of your book, to me it's this, this flowing, soft, uh, very feeling-filled uh, expression. It ain't easy. <laughs> I, I imagine it's not there's no way i could do anything on that level but like uh, yeah I, d- I don't think about the work when I, I i look at the art i just experience it as this work of beauty and uh every painting is a compilation of errors <laughs> <laughs> and so you're constantly going back and asking you know is that is that what you meant you know isn't there a better way to do that and Sometimes, even though you think you know how, you just can't make it happen. Yeah, yeah. And how do you how do you continue then? Well, um, yeah, you just it's well, like I say, it's work, it's perseverance, it's a marathon. You're you're in there to complete it, so you keep going, and you know, hopefully, I don't kill it by by the yeah. <laughs> in the process. So we've been talking about some pretty finite concepts around the the Fox River testimony book and about the artistic work that you've done through that. Let's take a step back a little bit. And what does, you've been doing this for a long time. How many, I mean, I don't want to ask your age, but (laughs) if you were to encapsulate from when you started becoming a professional artist in the truest sense of the mean, where you're getting paid to do the work to today, roughly how long has that been? It's been about 50 years. If you were to encapsulate, whether it be the, the fullness of your work with a river testimony, uh, Fox River testimony, or whether it be the fullness of your entire professional career, and you look at the life of an artist, what does it mean to you to have been an artist and a working artist for such a long period of time? 
Well, it's a it's a privilege, um, and I guess I'd take a word from the title of that book, uh, testimony, because it's like uh, you know being in court. Someone asks you to give your testimony. You know, what did you see? What what was there? Mm. And um, in some ways, I feel like it's a bit of an honor to have the opportunity to say, well, this is what I saw. This is what happened. This is the way it went. <laughs> and uh, that's probably, a, that's a very big part of what I think my artistic life has been. But it's also been very much about discovery, because in the process of examining your testimony, you always find something more, something different, something mm. you didn't know. And of course, then as an artist, you're not just playing out of your own little heart. You're playing out towards the history of art, for, towards the culture that you live in. You're looking yeah. at, you know, uh, wonderful people who have done wonderful work, you know, far more heralded than mine will ever be. Um, and you're, in a sense, responsible to that and to being knowledgeable about that so that you're, you know, it's, it's always a, a bigger, much bigger game. Uh, you know, the idea that the artist, even to say that, the artist, you know, I mean, I kind of cringe uh, it's really a, a big world of a lot of people working on things. I think a lot of that comes back to the whole notion of belonging and bewilderment. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a, a really interesting way of bringing them back together. Yeah. Is that you do belong in this position of art and artistry and being an artist, but yet where are you in it? And how does that fit into the grander scheme of art yeah. and creation and right. humanity? Yeah. It's a difficult question to, to to wrap your head around, isn't it? Oh yeah, and I, and again, I think the average the average person thinks of artists as sort of loners, uh, but perhaps there are some people who are like that. But I think most of us realize, you know, there's a big chorus out there, and uh, there are a lot of people who've contributed to our understanding of how things are and to not respect and pay attention to everything going on. And then to bring that into yourself is to kind of assume a little bit of arrogance maybe. Yeah, that's, like, that's mm. chewy. <laughs> that's really chewy. Mm. Well, Joel, this has been a true treasure for me. It's been <laughs> a joy to get to know you and get to see more of your work and to to get to share some of your your passion and your patience uh -huh. and your sensibilities uh, with our audience. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a privilege for me to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. 
please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW. 